Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All. I am really excited to have a special guest with us here today, General Robert Spaulding, the author of this really fantastic book called Stealth War. General, uh, so great to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you. So I could try and give some of your background. I've got your uh, Wikipedia uh, in front of screen shared right now, but who, who knows what that thing says? Yeah, well, you know, that's there's probably half misinformation uh, or or more at least these days. But um, but anyway, you know, so many amazing accolades just about your experience. Um, so many interesting initiatives that you've spawned and 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 helped push forward. You know, as a true patriot here. Uh, for the country. What would be your overview? What would be your kind of way to to describe some of that background and, and some of these um, very illustrious roles and positions that you've held? Well, you know, I, I thought I was going to be uh, a farmer and I saw this movie Top Gun and I'm like, hey, that looks like fun. So I went and you know, joined the Air Force and I thought I was only going to be there for one assignment. And, you know, one assignment turned into almost 27 years. And Along the way, I got to live in China, um, have, have spent a lot of time working on China foreign policy and national security strategy and policy. And uh, it really kind of, uh, towards, the, towards the end of my career, really kind of um, set me on a different path. And so um, I'm a strategist, I'm a, I, I focus on policy, but I'm also a, a tech entrepreneur. So um, it's, uh, it's really come full circle for me. So you were on the uh, National Security Council. We're going to talk more about you know what you helped spearhead in that role around 5G. You uh, were flying uh, B two bombers, you know, just a, a couple decade ago. Um, you know, you've just seen so many different parts of kind of the the military and Washington machine over your career. Ultimately, a lot of that culminated in in this book, right? And and the and the subheader is. Stealth War, How China Took Over uh, While America's Elite Slept. And, th- and that really maps back to, um, as you mentioned briefly there, you were senior defense official and defense attache to China in the, you know, just over the past few years. So pretty recently, what, starting in the 16, 2017 timeframe. But it was kind of that whole life cycle and then these past, say, handful of years that really helped kind of culminate in in this book. Is that accurate? Would you say? Yeah, the book, actually, I left, um, I left the Air Force uh, in the November of 2018 and started writing the book right away. And it was done by April of 2019. So it, it actually, um, you know, was just a culmination of everything I'd learned in my last few years in the Air Force. There are so, so many things that you talk about and we talk about on the show. So, you know, it's it's difficult for me to figure out um, where exactly to start. Let's jump into the five G stuff, right? Let's start there. I want to talk higher level, but maybe let's just start with with some of that um, work that you did, and you know, ultimately that was something that you recognized early on. You know, you 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 figured out probably one of the hardest things to do in the world, which is. How do you gain consensus and get buy-in amongst a myriad of bureaucrats that don't want to ever, you know, commit to anything, right? And what led you to say, this is so important, right, that we need to figure out this 5G thing, right? Like, what was some more color there that really kind of, that light bulb went off and then you said, I've got to make this a key priority? Well, look, first of all, um, you know, I had reached the point in my career where um, I was comfortable um, being done. And so, uh, and not that I wanted to purposely end my career, but I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of taking on a challenge. And so, you know, I knew I had a few months remaining uh, at the White House and I'm like, how am I going to best spend the time? And everybody was talking about this new technology. My, my belief, my fundamental belief about warfare uh, and it's been informed by everything I've learned about the Chinese Communist Party is, is, is it's really about information. It's about perception. Uh, and the better you are at, at controlling the narrative, the better you are at you know, winning this war. And, um, you know, I really saw our, you know, 
our inability to protect our data, to really uh, take sovereignty over our own information space was our biggest challenge. And so I said, hey, why don't I take this on? There was no, I didn't get told to do it. I just said, I'm going to do a study on 5G. And so I started it and, and, uh, and that's how it came about. And, uh, and I think part of my, my uh, inability to read the tea leaves politically was really formed by the fact that I'm not a politician. I'm a, I'm a warfighter. So, so I, I went out there and I started, um, you know, flipping over rocks. And unfortunately, under one of the rocks uh, was the tele telecom industry, which didn't like, <clears throat> didn't like people poking around in there. The inherent assumption and, and concern, which we've talked about on the show, is that if you put Huawei infrastructure into your nation's communication uh, in, you know, plan, then you have now just, it's, it's not even a Trojan horse. It's not even like it's hiding. Like you've literally just invited in the enemy. You've given them the keys to the kingdom. There is no real way to uh, ensure that there isn't a back door, that they couldn't turn it off, that they couldn't view the data, that, that they couldn't wreak havoc on your communication infrastructure. And, you know, it seemed like that was somewhat of a contentious assumption or accusation to make. And, and I mean, it just seems so obvious to me, but it, it still seems like that is not um, a moot point. You know, it doesn't seem like people have even fully agreed that that risk is a real risk, even though I think your work has been successful to keep Huawei out of the U.S. And now I think the U.K. has signed on board with that and other uh, kind of Western nations and U.S. allies, right? But, but that's kind of the fundamental underpinning of why you had to keep this thing out. Um, but, I mean, what was it like fighting that battle then and, and still, you know, the battle rages on? So, first of all, I'm a B2 guy. What do we do? We take out communication nodes. So, when I started to understand, this was back in 2014 when, um, you know, a friend of mine that I'd met in New York sent me a report that one of our audit agencies has done, had done. And when uh, I realized that, okay, I can bomb a communications node with my B2, um, or I can own, or I can otherwise control by, you know, providing the equipment that um, gets installed in there or having access to it. There's so many ways to uh, impact um, a nation's infrastructure. Bombs dropping from a B2 is just one. And I think that's part of the myopia of Washington, DC. Uh, we've, we've taken warfare, at least our version of warfare, which is applying military force to achieve a political outcome to its, to its caricatured extreme. Like if I put one bomb here, then I'm gonna make everything you know, the way I want it. Well, in reality, that's just one way of, of getting what you want. And we have you know, basically neglected, you know, we had um, during World War II, we had the OSS. Uh, and the CIA used to be uh, fairly effective prior to really you know, its destruction after you know, the 70s. And so we have one way of going after something and that's dropping a bomb on it. Um, but you know, China has, has cultivated a myriad number of ways of doing that. And the biggest you know, mistake I think that the Trump administration uh, did you know, in following up on what I had done with regard to the report is it became all about Huawei. It's actually much more pervasive across our tech um, environment than just Huawei. You know, and Western companies share the same standards and technology. So, you know, it's not just Huawei, it's basically everything. And the way we've looked at it is, is to be, um, is to create this vulnerability that China takes advantage of. Our book won a Chinese award. The last time I was in China was 2018. I flew into the belly of the beast and I was the only foreigner in a room of 400 top government officials, academics, etc. And, you know, what they said is we are attacking on three key planes, right? One is uh, economically, one is militarily, and then the other one is technology, right? And they're across the full spectrum. And that's the point you make and, and, and really illuminate in a number of ways throughout the book um, so accurately is that they look at the full spectrum. War is kind of the last spectrum, but there's a whole bunch of other things that precede that. 
and if anything, in today's environment are more important than kinetic warfare. And, and we talk about it on the show, we are in information war. It's not like we're going to be. We are currently in an information war. That's some of how you view it as well, right? Right. So, um, and, and really, it's just I'm astounded every day about um, the scale with which uh, the Chinese Communist Party wages this war. 2020 is probably the most effective um, example of an information campaign that has been a hundred. It's like um, it's like uh, shock and awe in Baghdad, you know, where in 21 days we we basically took down the country um, in, you know, in almost uh, the same number of days, uh, the Chinese Communist Party put in the pieces to take down civilized democracy. I mean, around the world. And they did it using stuff that they had put in place years prior. And these are things that I didn't even know. You know, the, the report that came out of the Imperial College of London calling for over 2 million Americans to die and all those subsequent reports coming out of that school um, in epidemiology have been really biased to the extreme. Well, it turns out in 2015, Xi Jinping paid a visit to the school, gave them millions of dollars. And so they basically bought them off and they became part of the information campaign that was waged on civil liberties throughout 2020 and is still waged today. And so, yes, it's it. We are at war. We're losing. In fact, the the, the single greatest campaign of the information war um, was waged in 2020 and still goes on today. Now, what's happening is people are beginning to wake up. But man, so many of our civil liberties have been had taken. You know, just in just in um, 12 months. Yeah, a number of civil liberties. I mean, there might be something in particular you're alluding to for 2020, but maybe we'll come back to that. But you know. Um, here's something from Larry Summers, right? And this was when um, the whole thing around TikTok started to come about, right? And, and you can't see this, but I'll just, it's one little blurb here. And they said, what do you think about President Trump's recently signed executive order to block all transactions with TikTok and Tencent? And he says, I was surprised. It was very unclear to me what the rationale was. You know, if there were sufficiently egregious espionage activity, I could imagine taking radical action. But that case has not been made there were sufficiently large threats around sabotage of networks, I could imagine action. You know, he's basically saying there's no evidence of, uh, of, of the data being abused, of, of the CCP having complete access to all the data in TikTok and Tencent and all these Chinese tech monopolies. And, and I guess, I mean, it's laughable, right? I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's laughable, but in a really bad way. I mean, you've been, you, you said it yourself, you're a general, you're not a politician, but these are smart people. Like, is it that they're just dumb or, or are they, are they bought off? You know, are they compromised? Like I, what is the gap? I, I just don't understand it. Well, so, um, you know, I don't know if you uh, recall, but just a few weeks ago, it was revealed that the incognito uh, mode within the Chrome browser um, was still being tracked, your data was still being tracked by Google. So um, we know that Silicon Valley companies are tracking data all the time. Um, why we, <laughs> we would not suspect the Chinese? Look, um, part of it is hubris on the part of Americans. I had it before, I, you know, my eyes uh, were opened by the report that I had read. But, uh, you know, it took me a, a time, a while to figure out that, okay, I was, I was not, uh, I didn't have the right perspective. And, and really hubris is one of the reasons. We believe that our system is infallible, maybe not infallible, but at least better than any other system. That really uh, creates this kind of um, lackadaisical attitude that leads to um, what China has done. Now, there's another portion of that. That's what they are. Uh, that's their uh, information campaign. And, and it's two things. One is, our rise is inevitable. In other words, we're going to be um, we're going to be the number one country. There's nothing you can do about it. We have more people. We have more resources. We're harder working. Uh, Americans are lazy, as are other um, people in developed economies. Um, and number two, we're not a threat. We're you know we're your standard you know run of the mill uh, entrepreneurs. We don't we don't want to take territory. You know, both of those, the, both of those things are bogus. So when you put in our hubris and their basic, you know, uh, we're inevitable and we're not a threat anyway, 
then you have this you have this uh, attitude that's kind of like and then i found it when i got here uh to the pentagon they started training me as a military diplomat and the, and and the things that we were telling them are exact same things they were telling us like why are our talking points the exact same as ours and that's because people like larry summers and you you saw it with biden in his recent interview about the uyghurs or his uh, town hall where he says it's their culture they have so thoroughly controlled the narrative uh, both about what what the chinese people themselves one for 1.4 billion people live in china what the chinese communist party says and then even what what foreign diplomats say about china they have been able to control that narrative completely so if you work at csis if you work in carnegie endowment in dc if you work in a law firm if you're uh if you're a politician that has frequent um, uh, forays into foreign policy or national security policy and somebody asks you a question about china what you know what do you know the chinese think about x what almost always come out comes out of people's mouth are the same things and they're all the same things that the chinese communist party wants us to say and so they have thoroughly co-opted the way we talk about china and, and this is where pompeo was trying to make the point the chinese communist party is not china is not the chinese people what they want you to believe is that what the chinese communist party says is that they are speaking on behalf of those 1.4 people and their history and culture and geography and all the vibrancy of china and in reality they're talking for themselves and they're talking on behalf of the interests that they have in maintaining control and, and, and basically squeezing the Chinese people and everybody else for more money. So when we when you when you actually realize that, then you can understand why Larry Summers would say the things he'd say. Not only is he has he been very well uh, enriched by the things he said about China, because every time you say something positive, you get rewarded. If you say something negative, if you're a China researcher, they pull your visa or you don't you know you don't get that investment in your company or something so it's it's once you adopt that worldview they just keep feeding you and so i you know when i was at the white house i had to um basically just say look um we can't say you know so and so is a panda hugger and so and so is a china hawk the truth is we're all part and complicit uh, in, in basically going along with this lie. And, and we have to own up to that as co collectively, because when you start pointing fingers, then it becomes, well, you know, um, you know, so-and-so is a panda hugger and so, so-and-so is a, is a China hawk. No, we're all, we're all culpable for having bought into this lie. Now, some like the China experts, uh, at Carnegie and CSIS and Brookings and other, um, and other um, you know, places that basically repeated the Chinese Communist Party's mantra, they're, I, I say they're more culpable, but you know, they're like everybody else. They've been kind of duped into, um, into following, uh, following a, a, a pattern of, of, of a narrative that the Chinese Communist Party, they're, they're experts. That's what they do. Have we lost, like, is there even anything we can do? Yes, I mean, we can wake up like, <laughs> so I mean, you would not believe the number of emails and um, and and you know direct Twitter messages I get from people that read the book, and they're like, "Oh, I get it. Um, what can I do?" And and the answer is, you know, you can you. There's plenty to do. Um, and you know what my job at the National Security Council was to educate my you know colleagues on what was going on and let them figure out in their you know where they were responsible what were the actions that they could take if you're a business owner i mean there's a lot of things that you can do you can start to begin to think about how do you how do you change you know the things that you're um that you're oriented with in terms of you know providing more or less um uh uh, uh what china needs which is is essentially jobs so if you're if you're moving your manufacturing to china because um you know you're you want to get your higher margins well you're giving them what they want and and you're basically selling a little piece of your of your liberty you just don't know it yep so you know applico we don't work with china we don't work with russia we don't work with uh communist totalitarian countries it's 
you know, and, and you actually touch on this in the book and you just touched on it uh, a minute ago where there's a very big difference between the CCP and the Chinese people. And, and that's the problem with what we talk about with these tech platform monopolies is when you actually look at a lot of the mechanics of a centrally planned and controlled government and you look at the power and data and um, access of a large tech monopoly, lots of similarities there. And then when you put those two things together and you actually see now, as has been clearly laid out, particularly over the past few months, ever, ever since Jack Ma, you know, they weren't even not so nice, but ushered a few words that, you know, grimaced uh, President Xi and colleagues. You know, but they've made it very clear who is who is the 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 king monopolist in town, and that's the CCP, and who is subservient. And the Chinese tech monopolies, I think, have ex- have so much vastly accelerated the CCP's ability to control uh, their people that that when, then when you do the calculus and say, oh well, what's what's the good and bad of these marketplace platform business models? Well, when it, when that's in the hands of a totalitarian communist government the calculus is clear it's a net negative there's it is not even close and you talk about this in your book to talk about how pervasive and how controlling the the ccp has gotten um and in using technology as a mechanism to do that right and well i mean silicon valley really created this uh, incredible enterprise for taking data about you and turning that into uh, influencing your behavior. That I mean, that's uh, in a nutshell the business model that they built. Well, the Chinese Communist Party looked at that and say, "Okay, I can influence your consumer behavior, but I also can influence your social and political behavior." So now I've got a trifecta. And oh, by the way, because we've connected all these data pipes uh, to the entire world and we're plugged in because the Cold War ended and and everybody thinks that we're great. Now we've got data pipes everywhere. And so while Google, Facebook, uh, and Amazon have a lot of power to kind of uh, begin to shape your uh, perceptions of the world, Chinese Communist Party is built, is, is basically plugged right into that same um, enterprise. And, you know, their goal is to dominate it all. You know, Kaifu Lee, when he says, we want to be the Saudi Arabia of data, I mean, oil was one... <laughs> was one thing, but your information, what you do, who you are as a person that's carried over uh, the internet, information technology, uh, pipes and in the data centers that's being processed today. I mean, that really, um, it, it enables the owner of that data to begin to, you know, overstep the bounds of where, you know, why, so why we had a, um, if you read the Federalist Papers, and Alexander Hamilton wrote many of those, if you read those, I mean, his point about a union was the fact that, you know, collectively the states could protect um, their interests. Well, what you find now is that your borders no longer protect your interests because you're, uh, you have this digital border that's complete, that doesn't exist. And so because we're so digitally connected and because of the global supply chain and the flow of money, so information, technology, talent, and capital, you have the ability, you know, as a national nation state actor like China to begin to direct everything. And uh, we acknowledge, it's funny, you know, Europe created GDPR. We acknowledge the power of Google, Facebook, and Amazon, but then we don't look at a totalitarian regime that has Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Oh, by the way, they have uh, Facebook and Google and Amazon beating down the door trying to come into China. So that's another uh, lever. So you have total control over this enterprise. And, and we're just like, it's, it's, it's amazing to me how oblivious people are. You made a little point just there. Can we double click on that? Google, Facebook, Amazon beating down the door. We've talked a lot about on the show how it is such a travesty that U.S. tech monopolies are reticent to work with the U.S. Department of Defense, you know, they, they put on a good show, they being the U.S. tech monopolies say that isn't the case. But, you know, Facebook too, Facebook, I thought was like, oh, we don't want to do stuff in China. I mean, but that's what you're seeing is, hey, they want 
quarterly, you know, they, they're driven by quarterly short-term profit. China holds the money in the access and they're dangling that carrot and, and getting, you know, more control and compliance from our U.S. tech monopolies. Is that what you're getting at? Right. And, and what Google will tell you kind of behind the scenes is, you know, they're going to steal it anyway. So might as well, you know, partner with them. And, and by the way, every industry does this. And so, you know, we're no different than anybody else. It's just that, you know, the, the people in D.C. So when, when you think about go back to um, the, the Constitution and how we created this country, the people in D.C. are thinking kind of on the wavelengths of, you know, a physical world. Um, they ha don't understand the digital world. Even when you had the, the tech CEOs come in for interviewing, uh, I believe it was last year, they didn't even know what questions to ask. Like they don't understand uh, what Silicon Valley is about. And but I guarantee you that Xi Jinping does. You know, and, uh, it was just came out. You know, in the Epic Times, uh, the 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 speech that he gave about controlling the internet. And people were like, "What? The Chinese want to control the internet?" I mean, I I, I don't know. It's just. Uh, it, 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 um, it's pretty funny that the tech industry being as, um, you know, as woke as they are, don't realize who their, who their real master is. I am not an optimist that any kind of regulatory or legislative um, oversight will come to our tech monopolies from within the United States. Let's go back to Great Firewall. You have a little clip here. In the West, the internet was built for connectivity. China, in keeping with the CCP's rigid authoritarian thought police mentality and driven by its understanding of data as a strategic weapon, constructed a cyber defense system that can deny connectivity. A lot of people, hopefully, certainly the people watching this show know about the Great Firewall. Two kind of questions to dovetail on this. What is your visibility into them kind of now exporting that great firewall technology to other countries like Russia. And I think it's reported in parts of Africa. Uh, and then I've got one other kind of farther out fun question uh, to, to, to also dovetail on, on piercing the great firewall, but it's being exported, right? But we don't hear much about that. Do you have visibility on that? Unless you kind of um, study this, you, you won't know this, but um you know, most Chinese language speakers today, particularly if they're talking to anybody on the mainland, uh, have WeChat. So um, you have the firewall in China. You can't have Twitter. You can't have Facebook. You got to have Chinese apps. You can only have Chinese apps. So now everybody gets on WeChat. You got, you know, a billion people using WeChat in China. Then they begin to travel and they leave China. As soon as they land in America, they don't all of a sudden, hey, I want to download Twitter and Facebook on my phone. Um, all their family back home is on WeChat. Uh, all the Chinese language speakers in, in the United States traveling uh, or living here are also on WeChat. So what happens is because of this platform, WeChat, which is, you know, basically been copied from, you know, other um, applications in, in the West and improved upon. It's basically a super app. Once you're in WeChat, you don't leave. It becomes like the operating system for your phone because you can do just about everything you want that you would use other apps for in, in say, in, in a not, you know, WeChat context. And so now when you, when, so part of this, um, globalization thing and this this intermixing of populations is that we believed, um, and the same is true for the internet. We believe that you know when when the Chinese nationals came into the United States, they would begin to see our culture, see you know what kind of you know system we had, and say, hey, we we like that system a lot better. But what happens is they come over and say that say they're a student, they'll be in our universities, uh, but they still use their social media apps. They tend to uh, continue to speak Chinese. They stay in clusters because we have so many of them. And ultimately, the Chinese do a good job of preventing them from leaving the Great Firewall, even when they're abroad. And it's, and it's a system where within China, the geographic boundaries of China, there's no competition for these apps. And that allows the Chinese government to export it. So in the Chinese language, is it is it exported through the apps that they have in China and that they use regularly? Also payment apps like Alipay, you can use WeChat also as a payment app. In fact, back the other day, uh, you know, I saw that you could go to CVS and use Alipay. 
So that's one of the ways they export it. The other way is through applications that for English language crowd like TikTok. Now, what is TikTok? TikTok is basically an information vacuum cleaner uh, and, and basically pays attention to how you use the app. And then that data gets sent back to China where they have algorithms that, that take how you use the app and then serve up videos that you're gonna wanna watch. And so now they have you kind of hooked on the videos that they want you to watch. And over time, they can begin to slowly intermix videos that really have the message that they want you to, uh, that they, so they understand what you like, and then they start to deliver messages in that format so that they're more readily accessible. So, I mean, they're using the same tools um, that Silicon Valley uses to kind of get you hooked, but they're tools for a purpose. It's for a, it's for a control purpose. And Xi Jinping is basically said so himself. You know, you talk about the 50 cent party, 50 cent army uh, in the book. Uh, our show has actually been a victim of of that. I mean, it's kind of hilarious, but still, nonetheless, you know, they've, they I mean, that's not like an accolade. They come after everyone, but they're using then foreign Western social media platforms and communication platforms, to your point, to really project the image and try to influence opinion. I think that's, you know, the, the big thing you're driving home, right? They're really masters of that kind of playing to our hubris um, and getting the right message across. So also with some, you know, some, some good, some plush money kind of carrot and stick behind the scenes, right? Um, but they're doing 50 Cent Army. Um, I've seen reports that, you know, they are using like LinkedIn and, and, and different uh, platforms to recruit. Uh, you talk about it in your book, you know, there are different kind of like recruitment, like expert programs, and they'll, they'll literally pay you for expert advice. Uh, if you used to work at a jet engine factory or something like that, that you're talking about. So they're using their own Chinese tech monopoly apps and then expanding influence abroad. And then they've got, you say, millions of people, you know, in the 50 cent party that are then, you know, doing that to, to uh, influence opinion. I'm sure there's another group um, which is kind of recruiting these like expert kind of pseudo spies abroad. I mean, it is impressive. I mean, it's scary, but it is kind of unfathomable, I think, to me or the, or, or, or the United States to, to really understand how systemic and coordinated and how much scale they're operating this at. I mean, it, it is, we have no idea, like we, we, are, we, we don't hold a candle to what is going on here, right? Or, or is there some secret group that I don't know about buried away in, in the DOD or something that... I mean, it just seems like they are light years ahead of us when it comes to this kind of information warfare, projecting the image, recruiting people, you know, data collection, all this stuff. It's because they've embraced what uh, Silicon Valley built, you know, the, and they are um, Silicon Valley did a great job at kind of building this um, data monopoly empire on the Chinese company, Communist Party just basically took it because it, it made a lot of sense in terms of their context of warfare. So. Uh, it shouldn't be a, a shock to us, you know, that that this is, you know, what they what they do. And um, we it's funny because people get up, upset, at, you know, at Amazon or they'll get upset at Facebook and they're like, you know, those they are bad, um, but, you know, they're nothing compared to Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. You know, here's an interesting thought experiment. So, you know pretend like you're Alexander Hamilton and you're explaining the second amendment to somebody that's um, that has never, you know, lived in a, in a, in a society in a, or maybe has lived under an oppressive ruler. And so you're saying, Hey, we're going to allow you to have guns and, and you're going to be able to defend yourself against oppression. Uh, if the government, if the, this idea fails and then, and then, you know, um, and then Zuckerberg walks in and he says, but did you know that I can influence you to think that, you know, th somebody is oppressing you and you won't even know it. And so now you, you begin to wonder, okay, the second amendment defends me from somebody that's, that I believe is oppressive, but it's now possible to convince me that somebody's oppressing me without my knowledge or consent then, you know, then you start to get into this question of, 
okay, in that context, what good is a second amendment? Because you could have a gun and you could use it, but you may be in, enticed or induced to use it against your neighbor because you're convinced that your neighbor is the threat. This is the power that you know we've never had before. You know, me as a B-2 pilot, I, studying uh, warfare from the air, it's always been difficult to employ an airplane uh, to defeat a population. Uh, Warden talks about five rings theory. It's really focused on um, the leadership of a country, the political leadership, um, because the population, what tends to happen uh, in, in air campaigns is when you bomb the population, they don't get mad at the government. They get mad at the people bombing them. And so it, it's, it turns out it's very difficult to convince a population to overthrow the government using bombs. But you can convince a population that they've convinced themselves that they should overthrow a government. Now, this is what China saw, you know, with Twitter and color revolutions and globalization and the Internet. Like, wow, the, the, the United States is exporting this, you know, this, this ability to question the system that you live in. That's really dangerous. Nobody's ever been able to do that in warfare before. You've always had to basically conquer and subjugate a people in order to, to get them to, to basically behave. But now you can actually get them to, con you can actually convince them to do it themselves. And so they wanted to take control of that and, and own it. And, and quite frankly, as a, as a warfighter, it's the most impressive way of going to war because it doesn't cost you anything. It's not risky. And it's, you know, Silicon Valley has basically made it um, scalable. You can scale it and you can scale it quite cheaply. Um, you know, think about the $800 billion a year that we spend on the military and think about the Wu Mao, uh, the 50 cent um, brigade and, you know, bots, AI bots for, you know, much, much less than $800 billion a year. You can begin to move the levers of influence in your favor globally as as long as you build these global platforms which is what baidu alibaba and tencent are and then facebook amazon and google have basically they they allow you to to take over their platforms and use them in ways that promote your your message right they they are actually selling their ability to influence the people whose data they collect right that's how they make so much money and so you know all the Chinese Communist Party has to do is, you know, in, in, in addition to leveraging Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent is, you know, buy ads on, on Facebook, buy ads on Google. And, and, and of course they do. Not only do they do that, um, and as you mentioned, you know, they, they have leverage over the, the U.S. tech monopolies that want to get access. That's one of the two key things you talk about, right? Uh, a leverage point for China, get access to the Chinese market. Another example of it is, for example, Reddit raising 300 million dollars and guess where that money came from that's the other that's the other example you right it's either access to china or 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 money outside of china and you know that when tencent puts money into reddit they put in 150 of the 300 million dollar round tencent's getting some goodies in terms of access maybe they get a nice little port portal for the, for the 50 cent party to do their job more effectively i don't know but they're they're getting something for the $150 million more than just these many shares in the company. So it's, it's really genius how they've, and I think that's your point. Like it's not happening. Like they've done it. They, they're penetrated. They're they're It's everywhere. Yeah. I mean, imagine if Zuckerberg had, you know, he could basically call in the U S military, the CIA, you know, every, you know, every government agency, you know, to do uh, the things that he wanted to do to expand his business. And, and that's essentially the, the system that the Chinese Communist Party has. It's very scary. Now, okay, let's have some fun. You just tweeted about a, a favorite person on the show, Elon. Um, Elon is a platform entrepreneur, PayPal co-founder, guy understands platforms really, really well. And he's a genius in many other ways. But you say the CCP wants control of Elon Musk. They want SpaceX and Starlink to be under their control. Do you think that Starlink could pierce the Great Firewall veil? Someone's got to be thinking about that, right? I think the Chinese Communist Party worries about that. And I think um, 
you know, uh, <laughs> this is a, this is this was fun to watch because you watch the factory being put in the Tesla factory put, being put in the China and you understand the pattern of behavior. It is they're very conciliatory. Uh, Tesla owns their factory in China. Look, when I was there, this was back in 2002 to 2004 when I lived in China. Uh, I talked to this one um, uh, guy was from a company from uh, Germany. Uh, it was a they were making industrial voltmeters. And um, they had built a factory in Shanghai and everything was going smooth, no problems. Uh, then the Chinese Communist Party comes knocking on the door and says, hey, um, remember those fuses you wanted to import for your voltmeters? Um, you, you have to use Chinese fuses now. You can't use those fuses. And so um, this, this, um, the guy that was running the factory basically had to go to Hong Kong and have you know, somebody smuggle in the German fuses that they needed in order to keep this factory going because, you know, of course, you can't put you know, a, you know, bad fuses in, a, in an industrial voltmeter because somebody could electrocute themselves. So they couldn't have that. Well, what he had set up and what the Chinese knew what he was going to do, they knew he was going to go in and, and basically, um, uh, you know, smuggle these fuses in. Now they got you, right? And now they can swoop in and, uh, and take your factory and take your technology, which is in, in Tesla's thing, you know, I think it's actually something different. I think they want control over SpaceX. And the best way to take control over SpaceX is take control over Elon Musk. Now, the stock price for Tesla is has been um, what's been baked in is their sales in China. They're the number one selling electric vehicle in China, and so all you have to do is basically start to put pressure on um, on that uh, on the fact that they can continue to uh, be there as a company, and now you've got control um, of of that overall enterprise. And so th this is they're they're thinking three dimensional chess. We think of government and business as two separate things. That is not the way they think. They think everything's interrelated. How do I get access? You know, SpaceX does a lot of government business. Uh, Starlink, you know, could be could be a challenge for the Chinese Communist Party. Hey, yeah, how do we jam four thousand satellites? Maybe we don't jam any satellites at all. That that's what the United States would do. We'd we'd come up with this hundred and fifty billion dollar you know, um, the DOD program to design this, you know, spectacular, uh, technologically, um, uh, you know, complex system to block the, that's coming from these Starlink satellites. And like, no, we're just going to we'll get uh, control of Elon Musk and make sure that, you know, he's doing the things that we want him to do. This is the way that they think. I mean, the only thing you can do is just decouple. Right. Once you're there, they've got leverage, right? And so how do you just you got to just decouple. Now, what we see is we're actually seeing, rather than decoupling, I think we're seeing our U.S. tech monopolies accelerating the coupling, right? Like, like you talk about it in the book around, you know, you give some examples here in the 90s, early days of Alibaba um, and, you know, and somewhat that melding into Amazon with Amazon Marketplace. We just saw Walmart Marketplace like two weeks ago. It was the most disgusting thing, uh, General. Like Walmart comes out with a press release. They say, we're investing $350 billion in America. Two weeks later, the head of Marketplace at Walmart is in Shanghai saying, hey, guess what, Chinese sellers? Now you don't even need a U.S. business entity to sell stuff on Walmart Marketplace, right? And so, you know, we're, what I'm seeing, uh, January and February, 75% of the new sellers on Amazon, Chinese factories. So, I mean, not only are we gutting the American manufacturing system by our own U.S. tech monopolies, marketplaces, then you've got the content platform tech monopolies that are, you know, censoring free speech, um, which is completely unacceptable. And it just seems like we're just shooting ourselves in the foot at literally like every step of the way. Uh, so I'm glad that you're optimistic because, man, I need some positive energy on this show. You know, the poor subscribers are, <laughs> Alex, stop talking about doomsday every day. Well, um, the great thing about the Chinese Communist Party, you ever watch the, the clips of the Charlie Chaplin films where you have like 
a thousand uh, police officers chasing that one guy and he kind of gives them the slip um, and they, they kind of seem kind of bumbling. Well, you know, so the Communist Party has enormous resources they have. Uh, they can they all kind of uh, understand the playbook and they run the playbook very, very well. But they also have a fatal flaw, and that is the system doesn't um, allow for the transmission of bad news. It doesn't allow for um, questioning of the goals uh, of the Chinese Communist Party. And herein lies the, the real challenge for them uh, that I see. Um, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but, you know, um, shockingly, uh, it's come faster than I thought. But, you know, certainly in the last few months, you see the Chinese begin to make a move um, and, and begin to show that they're going to go after Taiwan. Um, so uh, it's coming. Uh, and and it's, it's more than likely after the Olympics, but before, you know, the next five years is out that, that we could see them uh, make a move on Taiwan. Now, what's going to happen is, you know, all of this headlong rush um, to get into China by these companies, they're going to be kind of the last ones in and the last ones to lose everything that they put in. So I think we're at the what I would call the last stages of this, um, you know, love affair with China. Uh, if you look at, you know, Chinese uh, stocks, um, they, you know, had a tremendous, tremendous run in 2020. 2021 is not looking good at all. If you're looking at the Hong Kong dollar, that's not moving in the right direction. So I think what's happening is there's this, we're at the last stages of it. Um, and they are trying to suck in as much capital, innovation, talent, and technology as they can before they make the move on Taiwan. Because they know when, that, when they do that, uh, the, the door is going to be shut. And, and, and they understand that whatever they have, that's what they're going to have to play with. And so um, that's where I see we're at right now. So the good news is um, they're, 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 they're wicked smart, but they're also um, in so some ways dumb. It seems a little unlike them, right? Like, you know, aren't they the ones that are forever patient? You know, they don't want to play their hand too quick. Do you think maybe the fact, and you talk about this a little bit in the book, I mean, we talk about on the show how much the United States is printing money, which is bonkers, but they're printing three times the money that we are printing now. And they've been doing it for 10 years, if not more. Do you think that there's some you know, urgency just for other kind of internal dynamics that they say, look, we got to, you know, we got to take Taiwan while we can because, you know, eventually our house of cards might come crashing down or, you know, it, it, are there other forces there that are kind of putting pressure on them to do a move like that? Because I agree when they do that move, hopefully, yeah, it's kind of like the last nail in the coffin or one of the last nails in the coffin to wake everyone up and say, you should probably think twice about doing business with communists, right? Like that's kind of like, you know, it's funny. I didn't grow up in this environment, but I can tell you my parents, right? You know, you grew up in that environment where you say, yeah, like communism, not so cool. Like you don't really want to do business with communists. You know, it's not like a cool thing to do. And then that has kind of been normalized the past couple of decades. What you're saying is that's on the way out. Um, taking Taiwan would accelerate its exit from that being just kind of like an okay thing. Maybe people would feel more comfortable speaking openly about it. I know CEOs, I talk to big companies, they can't get their money out of China. They've dumped all this money in. Even if they're making money, they can't take their money out. They're not happy. What do they do? And they don't want to tell the market. Right. They don't want to tell the market. They're terrified because when they tell the market, the whole charade is up for them. And so you know, the, the, the answer here is you don't want to be the first, right? You don't want to be, um, uh, what was the, uh, what was the first uh, in 2008 to fall? Was it, um, uh, whatever the first kind of bank that went, they just, Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns. there you go. Uh, but everybody else they save. So, you, so, the, so the idea is just don't be the first somebody, it's going to be somebody, right? We know it. And, and they're, and they're, and they're going to get, they're going to be sacrificed, but then the government's going to step in. Oh, cause we're going to have, you know, collapsing the economy. Um, you know, so, you know, they, that's what they're all like sitting there waiting for this, you know, this horrific train crash that you know is coming. And yeah, 
Is it stupid? Yes, but that's the whole point of a, 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 a dictatorship is stupidity can 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 be allowed to go because who's going to who's going to, you know, basically tell the emperor he has no clothes. Definitely not Jack Ma. He's learned that lesson. Or Elon Musk. Right. Yeah. Maybe that's your next book, General. It's the Great Reset, but like the correct version of those words. Right. It's kind of saying, look, we got to we just got to write China off like we're going to take a hit. You know, um, there's just Ponzi scheme after Ponzi scheme going on in that country. If we said anything about it, they'd just take all of our assets. We don't even really own these assets anyway. But, you know, be nice to us, uh, stock market, essentially. Right. That's kind of the someone's got to burst that bubble. And once it pops, uh, then everyone can start to really kind of speak openly, whereas right now they've got everyone bottled up um, very succinctly and. It's uh, I mean, it's impressive how they've been able to do it. But you know what? I love that point of view. I I like it. I like it. And um, let's let's wrap up on that note. General, what else you got going on? Anything else we should know about? You mentioned tech entrepreneur in the beginning there. What else is going on in your life now that, um, you know, post book here? Yeah. So, um, you know, I I told you I you know thought I was going to be a farmer. Um, you know, I got a Ph.D. in economics and math because uh, I thought, hey, I'm going to go to Wall Street and, and make my fortune. So, you know, I didn't, you know, and then I watched the, the tech bubble happen and, and then burst. Um, I've always had a passion for technology and, um, and innovation. Um, and so I, am, I have um, basically been working on for almost three years now, um, a concept on how do we protect critical infrastructure? How do we secure data? In a, in a free society. And so that we've turned that into a company and um, we're, you know, just starting to um, begin to market that. And we're actually going to go public in, in, in June and talk about what we've done. But we've taken basically an approach that says, you know, data is, is, is so critical, not just to a country, but to a community. It, it helps them bond. It helps them thrive. It helps them prosper, helps them be more productive. Uh, and yet we um, not only uh, are willing to give it up to these large tech monopolies, we're willing to give it up to foreign countries. So what we've created is an ability for communities to basically uh, keep control of their data and, and, ha- and protect their critical infrastructure. So that's what I've been working on. You know, I think if you look at this, uh, not as, just like the Chinese do, Wei Ji, right, is, um, is, uh, is, is what their, is their word for crisis. And it's, it's disaster and opportunity kind of uh, 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 put together. And that's what you have. You have all these companies are pouring money into China. They're going to lose it. Uh, but there's going to be enormous opportunity for those that think properly about, um, you know, what are the opportunities that are going to come when that great reset happens? And have you positioned uh, your company, uh, your technology, your strat- strategic thinking around this idea that this great, great reset's coming. And, um, and, and I think that's going to be the ones that really benefit from it. Wow. I love that. And I, I hope we'll have you back on in a couple months here once, once you go live. We'd love to hear more about this. That's it for us today. General Spaulding, thank you so much for the time. Uh, Stealth War, a wonderful read. Um, thank you, sir. And thank you for your service. Thank you.